Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 47, and Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common." And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Father's Day. I, uh, my family took me for a surprise dinner last night, and uh, we went and saw Madagascar 3, which is, if you don't know, about the zoo animals of New York uh, Central Park Zoo escaped, and uh, they've made a, their way in the world, and they're, they're going around. Of course, we're the only family in the theater who are getting all of the New York jokes, so we felt distinct in that way. Um, We've and in our uh, one of the, oh one of the things I wanted to say to you too is that being a father is an effort of community. If you're a dad, you know you can't do it on your own. You know that you need other people speaking into your life, carrying uh, the weight of being a father with you. And so uh, this week I go to General Assembly, which is the gathering of all of the the ministers in our denomination from across the country, and I'll be there all week. So I would ask uh, those of you in the community to to work with me as a father while I'm absent with my family as they've just transitioned in. We moved into our house last week and we're still getting used to things. So please look in on them for me as I'm away at General Assembly. We've been in our 14-part series uh, titled The Triumph of Jesus' Ministry. And this morning, one of the questions... Well, let's first consider one of the questions we've been asking as we've talked together. As we've talked together about the ministries of Liberty Fairmount, of the things that are precious to us that the Lord has put on our heart, the things we're gifted to do, the things we're involved in. And one of the basic questions we've asked in every single ministry is, what does it mean to welcome others? What does it mean to welcome others? How do we do it? What does it look like? Ajith Fernando, in his commentary on Acts, writes this about what welcome should look and feel like in the community of those who follow Jesus. Listen to what he writes. He's quoting another, uh, a, a pastor's wife, you'll see in a moment. True hospitality comes before pride. It has nothing to do with impressing people, but everything to do with making them feel welcomed and wanted. 
Mrs. Maines is a pastor's wife, and many church activities were held in her home. For years, it seemed as if she did nothing but clean up after people. After each group left, she had to get the house back into shape so they'd be ready for the next group. She was not a housekeeper by nature. Sometimes she delayed cleaning up the house if company was not expected. On one such day, someone from the church came to visit her. The house was a mess. Let Mrs. Maine tell what happened. Hospitality before pride, I reminded myself dismally. Determined, I welcomed the woman with warmth, invited her into the unsightly rooms, and refused to embarrass her with apologies. I consciously let go of my pride. The visitor's response amazed her. I used to think you were perfect, she said, but now I think we can be friends. The story is not intended to provide an excuse for keeping an untidy house. Rather, it is to show the key to hospitality, the key to welcoming others, is not our performance at keeping up things, is not our ability to cook, but an open-hearted friendship that makes people feel welcomed, makes people feel wanted. The food, the order of things, the inviting arrangement of things is all secondary in nature. This is the very thing that Jesus tried to show Martha way back in Luke chapter 10. The open-hearted friendship that makes people feel welcome has a lot to do with what we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, We're going to be talking about the balanced devotion and practicality of gospel spirituality. Balanced devotion and practicality of gospel spirituality. We're going to first talk about that you're meant to have balanced devotion in your spiritual life. We're going to take a look at what that looks like through our passage. We're also going to look at that you're meant to practically meet material needs through your spirituality. Practically meant to meet materially, to meet material needs through your spirituality. So first, you're balanced in devotion, the balanced devotion in your spirituality. Verse 242 says this, the early church was devoted to a balance of various things that we see in the text. To understand their devotion, it's helpful to have a consideration of the word fidelity. I looked up fidelity. Fidelity means this, faithful devotion to duty, or to one's obligations or vows, loyalty, faithfulness. The second definition is this, accuracy of a description, translation, etc., or the reproduction of sound and image, etc. The synonym is allegiance. That's from Webster's New World College Dictionary. So the early church showed fidelity to a balance of various things going together. One of those things was the fidelity to what the apostles were teaching about Jesus what they were teaching about Jesus. Verse 242, chapter 2, verse 42 says this, that, uh, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And on, in chapter 4, verse 33, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So there was a body of content. There was a truth that they were getting across. This is one of the aspects of life that they devoted themselves to. They showed fidelity to. Now, some review is necessary here. One of the things that the resurrection of Jesus did was to refocus, wait for it, the eschatological hopes of Israel. It refocused the eschatological hopes of Israel. Israel had a hope that God would be present with them once again. That he would make all things right. That he would dwell with them richly. The glory days had been in the past, hundreds of years in the past, centuries now. And you'll remember Simeon, 
as described as a righteous and devout man in Luke, who was waiting for what? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Where is the Lord's presence? Where is he? When will his presence again come to be with his people? One of the things that the resurrection of Jesus did was to refocus these hopes for Israel. That God was again present with his people. But it was unexpected fulfillment of these hopes. Now, back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. And this is what was prophesied about Israel's hope. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in, him you, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You remember Jesus talking about the temple. He said, you tear this down, and in three days I will rise it up again. So he's claiming for himself to be this hope of the Lord filling, in his presence, filling the temple, coming suddenly. And, and this idea of the unexpected ending, the fulfillment of the eschatological hopes of Israel, of God's presence with his people again, we see in different places. There's a great place that God's preaching in Matthew's gospel. It's chapter 13, 52. Do you know what it says? This is what Jesus said. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe, read seminary professor or preacher or pastor or religious expert, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. There's a continuity to the treasure. It's all treasure. But the gospel unites it all and brings it out in fullness. Now, one of the things that happens here in Luke is that he's picking up on the, on the phrases of Joel's prophecy that Peter talks about in his sermon. We covered that in a prior week. Joel said this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall see dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Now Luke picks up on this phraseology. Something old, and he shows something new, something unexpected, as evidence that God is present with his people. You'll see that Luke is talking about in Acts 2, 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. There's Joel's language, parsed out, right? Attested to you by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. God has made him both Lord and Christ. God is in his temple. And, uh, but not only do the mighty acts and wonders and signs attest to Jesus, watch this. Acts 2, 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You remember that what we're doing is looking at the triumph of Jesus' ministry. And that Jesus, because of his ascension, can send his spirit now to dwell in his people so that we... Represent him. His apostles were distinct in this because they were ushering in this transformation of age, this overlap of the ages, where what we will be true of us one day is already true now, and yet not fully true. There's more to come. Jesus will come back and reveal himself fully. So not only are these signs and wonders and mighty works done through Jesus, now they're done through his apostles. Mighty signs and wonders are what God foretold through his prophets, through Malachi. Through Joel. is what he showed his people through himself, dwelling in the person of Jesus. And then through his apostles. All this was to show the evidence that God is with his people. 
God is present again. The apostles were teaching about God's presence with his people in Jesus and bearing testimony to the resurrection of Jesus as evidence of that fact. He's present. He's with us. So that hope of God's people was refocused. The eschatological hope of his people was refocused in the person of Jesus. God is present with his people. It's a body of truth. Muhammad died and was buried. Buddha died and was buried. Jesus died, was buried, and was resurrected and ascended to heaven and sent his spirit to live in us so that we could have a different kind of life. So there's a body of knowledge. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not less than that. One of the things they devoted to, one of the things they showed fidelity to, the early church, one of the things we need to show fidelity to is the risen Lord reigning and living through us, living through his people. So there's a message, but there's also, there's not just devotion to the body of truth about Jesus, but there's devotion to, fidelity to, a new community. We're not left alone. We're not left to be isolated in our faith, in our faith in what Jesus has done for us. It's interesting, you know, the, the, the biblical scholars will tell you that it's interesting in the Greek that there's a definite article with fellowship. It's the fellowship. It's the fellowship. The definite article implies that there was something distinctive in the gatherings of the early believers, something externally recognizable in their identity. The way that Jesus lived in the midst of his community could be recognized from the outside. Everybody was in awe. You see that in our passage. There was a centrality of Jesus, Israel's Messiah and the Lord of humanity, bringing all things under his reign. Now, this meant a couple of things in community. One of the things they devoted themselves to was attending the temple together. Verse 46 in chapter 2, the temple was a, a favorite place. We also see that in Luke. They were continually in the temple blessing God at the end of Luke. And here they were in chapter 2, meeting in the temple again. It was a favorite place of gathering. What they were doing was gathering for worship and prayers. It says the prayers. So there's an old form of worship that is going on. These are Jews. This is Israel. This is Jerusalem. The second temple is built. They're taking everything that they know about Jesus and the fulfillment of their hopes, the refocusing of their hopes, and they're going into the temple and they're worshiping and they're praising God. It says they're blessed God daily. But they're also taking the prayers and they're filling it with the message and the content of Jesus. Now, this is interesting because they're filling old forms with the new covenant of the gospel. And what that, what that means, I think of Kevin Twitt of RUF. Do you, do you guys, some, we sing some of the hymns that he and his group of musicians at Belmont put together. And one of the things they did was take some of the older hymns that were present in the church and rich in the church, but the life and the music of the church a couple hundred years ago. How do you relate to music from a couple hundred years ago? Some of you just fine. You enjoy different periods within classical music and that tradition. But what about church music? How do you relate to that? Some of you had trouble worshiping to that, right? And so we see something going on here in the early church where they're filling the old forms with the content of Jesus. 
And one of the things that were happened that, that Kevin Twitt realized was the older hymns, a couple of hundred years old, were beautiful in their language about the gospel, but kind of bumpity bump hymns as far as singing and praising and worship is concerned. So he and the uh, musicians at Belmont University in Nashville took some time and they took the talent that God had given them and they rewrote some of these hymns. And we sang, we sung uh, at least one of them here this morning. They took the content, the richness of the old, and filled it with a new song. We have enough creativity, enough uh, talent that God has blessed in our musicians here. That that's one thing that we could do here. There's a continuity between the old and the new. We can take what we're doing, what we're gifted in, and we can celebrate it in new ways. We can take the old standard forms that point to Jesus. We can fill them with Jesus, and we can celebrate them. But also there was extemporaneous prayer. It's not just that they used the prayers that were the old forms, but there was extemporaneous prayer. They were responding in real time to what God has done in the temple. And we see this throughout various versions of the gospel. We see it in Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1. We see it in Zechariah's prayer in Luke chapter 1. We see it in Simeon's prayer in Luke chapter 2. Look, we have an arts collective, we have musicians. One of the things we can do is take the rich things of this world and bring our talent in this congregation, distinctively bear on it, and let it unfold in praise of God. The early believers saw that, and they did that with their forms of worship. So they devoted themselves to meeting in the temple and the prayers. But also, the Lord's Supper was something that was important. Now, I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to use a paraphrase of the shorter catechism about the Lord's Supper so that you can see one of the things that, or some of the things that it means. The Lord's Supper was established by Jesus to represent, seal, and apply himself and the benefits of his new covenant to those who believe by physical signs. The bread and the wine were given and received as Jesus established to proclaim his death until he comes again and to share in his body and blood with all of his benefits, not physically yet, but by faith and become spiritually stronger and grow in grace. So it was that they shared the Lord's Supper together. Breaking bread together meant that. But also breaking bread together means sharing meals in their homes with glad and generous hearts. Verse, chapter 2, verse 46 talks about literally they were taking the things that nourish them, the food that nourishes, and they were sharing that together in their homes. Now, similarly to the regulations that we face together as a congregation in the city of Philadelphia, where uh, we're prevented from feeding, serving food to homeless men and women in need and families in need in the park systems. There were unjust sanctions and regulations going on then. Think about it. Here are poor members of the community who attend the synagogue, and their needs are provided for by the synagogue. And now... Because of Jesus, they're going to be prevented from having those needs met. And so one of the things that's happened is that the early believers came around and they pooled all of their resources for food and nourishment together so that those who were poor and without would have food to share and nourishment to share. But they didn't just do this out of compulsion. They did this out of joy. They recognized how much they'd been given through Jesus and they did it out of joy. It says that they did it with glad and generous hearts. Joy. If you've ever seen the movie's, movie Babette's Feast, it's a little dry and it's a little hard to watch, but it's an important movie. It's a movie about a religious community that has lost the focus of joy in their faith. 
And there's a famous, a world-famous chef who comes to that community to escape uh, the war. And she comes to that community and she begins to cook. And she begins slowly at first, just by infusing the broth, the gruel that they would eat with a few fresh herbs from a garden. And it begins to change it. And over time, towards the end of the movie, she serves an amazing feast. She, brings every, she spends her life wages on as much wonderful food as she can find and gets shipped to her. And she cooks a magnificent feast fit for kings. And she serves it to those town people who have lost their joy. And wouldn't you know that in that sharing of meal together, in the wonder of the food that they're eating together, they begin to unlock... They begin, their joy begins to bubble up. Old wounds are healed. Old broken relationships are reconciled. C.S. Lewis talked about Christians should be the people who feel the most joy over the good things of this life. It's like taking the sunbeam and following it up to the source, the giver, the sun. In the same way, when we have a lovely meal, when we share fellowship, food, and nourishment together in our homes... We should do it with joy, with generous hearts and with gladness because it points to all of the generosity and all the grace that we've been shown. So not just devotion to a message about God's presence with his people in Jesus or devotion to a new community, but there was devotion to social concern as well. And we already talked about this a little bit. One of the things that you'll see here is they shared things in common. And what that means is there's a repeated, extraordinary and voluntary act of Christians in their concern. It was done in response to special needs by various Christians as needs arose. You can see that in chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. So the first thing is that sharing everything in common this way was extraordinary. It was as anyone had need. We see that in the text. We see also that it was a response from history to some of the unjust economic and social sanctions placed upon believers at the time. Also, economically, Israel was not doing well in this period of history. So there were, there were real material needs that the believers brought themselves around and met. Now, this wasn't regular. This wasn't every day. But it was as need arose, and, but it was repeated. In the, the um, New Testament scholars will tell you, that the verbs throughout those two, 34 and 35, those two passages, the verbs are all imperfect with iterative force. And what that means is there is a repeatedness to what was going on. But it wasn't continual. You understand? So this was as it arose. One example that you see, and it was voluntary. One example you see of that was Barnabas. And it's the end of our chapter 4 there, our passage in 4. All of this is to say, before we move on to our next point, many of you have known Christians who just studied this, understood its message, very rigorous about the message. There's a lot of detail, a lot of nuance that can be shared about the gospel. In its most basic form, we're going to confess it in a few moments in the Apostles' Creed before we take the Lord's Supper. In its nuanced form, you can talk for ages about it. It's important. We need not be less than that. But we've got to remember the early community was balanced in what professed. It wasn't just a celebration of the word. It was a devotion to community as well. They did do things in common. They did share the riches of their faith together. But it was all, all of that 
wrapped up with social concern as well. It's typical for Christianity, in this country in particular, to go either conservative or liberal. In conservative Christian circles, we're really great at this, expounding the truth. In liberal Christian circles, we're really good at social concern. This passage shows that we need to be balanced in all of it. Not just community, not just Bible gospel, not just social concern, but all of it together. All three perspectives of the Christian life are shown. There's not one perspective pitted against the other like it is often in this country. But a balance brought about by transformative grace. So that even those who didn't accept the gospel were able to perceive that something different was going on. The community was recognizable by what was seen. It says in verse 33, chapter 4, great grace was upon them all. And in chapter 2, 43, we see that awe came upon every soul. That means everyone, not just those of Israel, but all those who are in Jerusalem, Jews and Gentiles alike. So balanced devotion in your spirituality. But let's take a closer look. And one of the things that happens with this passage, especially when you see Christians, the early Christian church, sharing everything in common, are some uh, different accusations that might come up against that we have to think through together. So that you can, that you can understand this. First, we've already seen that it's necessary in Christian community, in the balanced devotion that is, is necessary to community, that we meet, we react to injustice by meeting needs materially. One of the things that the session just decided about the homeless regulation was that, look, we feel the regulation is unjust. We feel it's unjust. Because... We're told that our faith is so connected with feeding those who are hungry that on the last day, Jesus approaches those who say that they're believers and he says, but I was hungry and you didn't feed me. Away from me. I never knew you. It's not salvation. Salvation is not by works. Jesus stood in our place and we rely on him. We're in him. But the outflow of our faith doing service to those in need is so integrally wrapped up in it that without it, we have to question what's going on with us. So the reaction to injustice, we, we said that it is unjust, the regulation. We feel it's unjust. But there are also passages that say we need to obey those who are in authority. So what do we do? Our decision was to support our continued efforts in serving uh, the homeless. We're not going to bind your conscience. It's up to you. If you go with our homeless ministry... And you see the big sign there that says, don't do this. And your conscience says, I'm not going to do that. We're behind you. But if you feel that the regulation is unjust and that it, it harms those who are most vulnerable and you want to serve, we're behind you. But it has to be between you and the Lord on that. So reaction to injustice, but we have to react. In other words, we can't not react. What does reaction look like? We see that in the early church. Now, one of the questions that comes up with the early community sharing everything in common like this, says, well, isn't this just an early picture of another closed community taking its roots from some other sects in Judaism of the day? You know, the caves at Qumran, 
Have you heard about that, the Dead Sea Schools? There was a group called the Covenanters in Qumran, and they were a closed community. And one of the things they did was to hold everything in common. So isn't this just an example of that? And what I would say to that is, no, on the one hand, what we see here is repeated, extraordinary, and voluntary acts of Christian concern done in response to special needs by various Christians as needs arose. Right? So it was done as need arose. It wasn't mandated that it had to be that way all the time. We've talked about the poor believers who were supported by the synagogues to which they belonged. And when that support was taken away, the early church had to come around that. This kind of radical generosity of Christians was in part a response to unjust economic and social sanctions placed upon the believers. But you also have to remember, as we started out together, one of the things we looked at was Hebrew. And there are two terms in the book of Hebrews for what this kind of love should look like. One was Philadelphia, brotherly love, love of other in the community. But the word right next to it, and the verse right next to it is philoxenia. Do you remember this? Love of other. Show hospitality to others. So there's a sense in which love of other worked itself into the Christian community very quickly. Now, there was Jesus' response to the, the seminary professor type who asked, who is his neighbor? And the answer was the one who, shared most, the one who showed mercy on somebody who was outside of the community. Showed Mercy to the other. But also we see uh, Rodney Stark as a sociologist when he looked at, uh, he's trying to understand as a sociologist, how could a ragtag group of fishermen from a small nation in the ancient near Middle East get out of the gate with a major world religion like this? What happened? And one of the things he looks at is the actual uh, way that the early Christian community came out to the streets and served others, not just members of the community, but others, who were taken over by these plagues that swept through the Roman world and killed off a majority of the population. The only way you could survive the plague, we've talked about this before, was to take on the plague yourself by being near the person who was infected, by caring for them. You risk dying yourself. And why? Because the Christians understood that God of the universe came in, he died so that we might live. It's a very core aspect of the gospel. And so they did it too. Philoxenia, love of other. So it's not just a closed community like Qumran. Because it went outside from themselves. But was this an early picture of all things in common? Was it monastic? Was it the monasticism that we see later in church history? And again, the answer is no. The apostles and brothers of Jesus were married. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5 says this, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, by which they mean Peter? See also, you can see also the other believers in Jerusalem at the time. And next we're going to cover Ananias and Sapphira. Right? They were married. So it's not monasticism in this early community. And this is probably the most significant argument against or question about this early community and everybody holding something in common. Isn't this just a picture of communism? So the answer is no, and for a number of important reasons. First, Marxist communism denies the right of personal property. Denies the right of personal property. 
Individual Christians maintain that right. In Acts 5, chapter 4, Peter says, Wasn't this yours? Wasn't this yours to do what you wanted with, this land that you were about to give? And we also see that the early Christians are living in their own homes. In fact, their own homes are where they're celebrating and breaking bread together and having fellowship, the fellowship together. But Marxist, Marxist communism also imposes this upon all. Christians gave and give purely on a voluntary basis. They're not compul- there's no compulsion to do it. It's voluntary. So there's a difference there. Marxist communism wants to equalize wealth, but Christians were showing love for each other by helping one another when there was need. Marxist communism denies God. Christians worship God. The living God, the resurrected God, the God who came and bled and died and suffered for his people so that they might have a refocused eschatological eschatological hope. Though these early Christians had personal possessions, though they were personal possessions, they didn't consider them to be private. And there's the difference. They weren't private possessions to be held exclusively for their own use and enjoyment. They were personal. They were theirs. But they weren't private. So, in summary, we covered first balanced devotion. The key point is that there's fidelity to the message about Jesus, to his community, and to show his mercy in practical ways. This is brought about by Jesus' spirit. There's a centrality of Jesus in our devotion as Israel's Messiah, but also as our Lord, as the rest of humanity. Second, we covered practical material care. The key point is to be convicted by God meeting your needs. God met your needs on the cross through him sending Jesus to die in your place, to live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you should have died. He met your needs so that you can freely and regularly express your love and care to others by practically meeting their needs. Consider that balanced devotion and practicality of the gospel spirituality is exactly what you've been searching for. The gospel is not just you studying the Bible real hard and knowing all the facts. The gospel is not just you having great relationships in a warm community and sharing meals together. The gospel is not just you aligning yourself with the needs that you see around you and and meeting those needs materially. It's all three of them. Where do you find balance like that? Jesus makes it possible. So be balanced in your devotion to word, in your devotion to community life, in your devotion to social concern. See the one who himself was perfect and perfectly balanced, but was undone on the cross so that you could go out into the world with the balance that he brings in the good news of his gospel. See the one who had perfect fidelity with the Father, the one who came to care for you physically and spiritually and emotionally and mentally, to heal the lame and cure the blind and do away with sin and death. But he was treated like a traitor to God on the cross. He suffered all manner of need on the cross. He cared for us so that we could freely express our care for others. Where does this hit us in real life? What does it mean to welcome others who come in and one another 
with friendship that says, welcome, I'm glad you're here. What does it mean to understand the nature of the message of the gospel? Do you read your Bible regularly? Have you pondered what it means to study it, to be transformed by that message, to let that message break down from what you're thinking in your head about the gospel to becoming explosively true in your innermost being and letting that push you out into the world to serve as those who have been loved by our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? Will you pray with those things along with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the fact that although we have longing in our lives, that often we feel unbalanced, that often we feel like our devotion to various things is compromised, that the things that will make us whole are threatened, that we fear being undone, that you, Lord Jesus, were undone on our behalf so that we come to you freely now and boldly with a refocused hope, a hope that allows our devotion to be balanced, not one-sided, a hope that is able to take up social concern with vigor as an outflow of what you've done for us. Would you be more real and more present in our community as we move forward together in the light and life that your spirit brings? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.